Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. church. <clears throat> Excited to be here with you. If you're new to Heights community, my name is Corey, one of the pastors on staff. I get to be your teaching pastor uh, for this week, and so excited uh, to get to do that. Before we get into that, one more quick uh, announcement f- for the, a few of you. Uh, we had a covenant membership class sign up for October 8th, and um, I totally messed up that date, and so for those of you that are signed up, I sent an email out and said, hey, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to uh, to make that date, uh, my son and I had a, a tournament that we've already uh, been looking forward to for the last couple of months, and in my ignorance, I legitimately just did not put the two dates together. So uh, I apologize. In that, though, there were also uh, multiple families that couldn't make that weekend, and so we're going to uh, just try to get with them, get with those folks that have signed up, and try to make a weekend that'll work well uh, for everybody. Sound good? Sorry, so uh, my ignorance might be your gain uh, in that. I'm not... Too proud to get up and say I said something wrong. So, uh, Revelation 18. So, if you have missed last week or if you're new to Heights Community, we're currently in the book of uh, Revelation. It is a heavy, hard hitting uh, book. Last week, we, we sat under the tension of that text, which for, for me was, also, was as weighty for me to hear as it was for me to give uh, to you. And in that, the, the beauty of last week was that the church body responded to uh, what she heard. And that is. Absolutely incredible, man. That's exactly what you want as a, as a pastor, as a communicator of the gospel. You don't want to just get up and teach and preach and have people like respond emotionally to you and then go about and do nothing. Uh, what you want is for the gospel to actually take root in the lives of women and men and then to actually see them respond to the gospel uh, in their daily life. And so uh, last week, if you were here, uh, you heard the question of why do you marvel? And so if you were not here, let me get you caught up to speed just a little bit. Last week, the Apostle John was approached uh, by the angel. The angel says to the Apostle John, uh, I'm going to take you and I'm going to introduce you to what's called, to who's called the prostitute of Babylon. And so then the angel goes on and he says, hey, let me kind of prepare you for what you're about to see with this woman, with this prostitute. And he says, you're going to see her judgment. Not only are you going to see her being judged, which is what we get to actually see today, the effects of her being judged by the Lord. Not only are you going to see her being judged, but you're going to see her judgment that she's going to pour out on those whom are uh, the unrighteous. And then the, the angel says to her, you're going to see her, man, and when you do, she's going to be dressed incredible. You guys remember that? He's like, she has pearls. She has gold on her. She's drinking a chalice. She likes her, wet, her, her, she likes her wine really, really Red. It was the blood of the martyrs and the blood of the Christians that she's drinking in that moment, right? And, and in that, the, the angel is saying to him, hey, this is what's coming. Get ready for it. In case you don't know, here's what she's going to look like. And then when we read that text, the apostle John says, he says of himself, when I looked at her, I marveled greatly. You remember that? I hope you remember that. That was kind of the crux of our whole time together, wasn't it? And in that, we said that right there is like the difference between just being transparent, which is maybe confessing sin, and being vulnerable, which is actually walking out repentance and faith. 
And so it's easy to confess sin, but the actual turning to the Lord and seeing him on the cross and seeing him resurrected and believing he sent you the Holy Spirit, that's actual, that's vulnerability. Whenever you confess something and then you look at Jesus and you say, I'm confessing this thing over here because I'm more attracted to it than I am attracted to you. That's vulnerability. And so the Apostle John says, whenever I saw her, I marveled, that's transparency, and I marveled greatly. The difference there would be like, I saw her and she was attractive. That's transparent. Vulnerability says, and I would have considered leaving my wife for her. That's vulnerability. And that's what was revealed in the text, in first person, not in second person. And so whenever he says, I marveled and I marveled greatly, then the angel does not come to him and say, John, Johnny boy, you got to pick your mouth up off the ground, bro. You can't be looking at women like that in public like that, okay? That's not how he did it. He doesn't come, the angel doesn't come and say, John, you know the Bible. Do you wrote you're pinning Bible right now. You know better. You should know better. That's not what he says. What does he do? He comes up and says what? Why do you marvel? And in that one question, the angel asking John, why do you marvel? He asks a whole host of questions. What do you think that this woman's going to bring to you that Jesus has not already brought? What do you think your identity, how do you think she's going to affect your identity more in a more significant way than Jesus, the lamb who's sitting on the throne in the midst of this, has already affected it. So one question reveals a great deal of questions. You all heard that text, and then you responded. That's incredible. And the reason I know that is because I've got to have, I don't want to say countless, I've got to have a lot of conversations with you this week, and I've got to have conversations with MC leaders that have had conversations with you this week. And I've had people come in, and they said, man, like they're asking their kids, like when they're in sin, like why do you marvel? They're asking their spouses after work in the midst of an argument, like, what are you marveling right now? That's what we want. That's what, that's what should happen. It's not just a sermon to be delivered, but it's actually to be taken in and then actually forming and begins to form and reform you as you go out into there. And so what I want to do then, since I've kind of heard the conversations in your missional communities as well as even in my own missional communities, I want to ask the question then, what is so alluring about the world around me? What is so alluring about the world around me. And whenever you look at that, that word alluring, we used that word last week to say uh, of the prostitute, she was alluring. The world was alluring. That is, she is seductive. She is enticing. She's um, attracted. There's everything about her is designed in such a way that you would look at her the same way the apostle John looked at her and go, dang, like I didn't think she was going to look like that. I knew she was going to be attractive, but I didn't know she was going to look like that. She's very alluring, a, a, a seductive power that is such that you cannot take your eyes off of her. What about the world around you is so alluring, so enticing, so enticing, so attractive, so seductive? What about it that reels you in? And then the big idea is the answer that we're going to flush out here. The world offers physically what she cannot provide spiritually. And I think that is salvation. The world offers to you physically what she cannot provide spiritually for you, and it's salvation. She offers a better gospel, church. She offers a better identity. She offers a better savior. And at the end of the day, they're all just mimics, aren't they? Substitute saviors that we've seen in the book of Revelation. Three points to help flesh this out. So if you're online, thanks for tuning in. If you're in the room, feel free to write this down. Three points, a spiritual reality that drives a physical response is what we see in the text. A spiritual reality that requires 
a physical response, responding. And the third one doesn't look like it fits, but it fits. An hour is not an hour. We'll get there. All right, you ready? You good? Are you awake? You guys need coffee? We can just like let the people on Facebook Live, we can just chill for a minute. We get some coffee together, hang out, kind of shake it off a little bit. Um, all right, a spiritual reality, listen, that drives a physical response. A spiritual reality that drives a physical response. First point, Revelation 18, 1, when you're ready, say ready. All right, here we go. <clears throat> After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. But you think about that even as we're sitting here. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He's ascending down with great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. We've not seen that yet in Revelation in this way with an angelic host, verse 2. And he, the angel, called out with a mighty voice. He's singing, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird. There's a, a spiritual element there, though. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for unclean spirits, a haunt for unclean birds, for every detestable beast. And then in three, there's a physical response that happens here from the people to the spiritual power. Verse three, for all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have physically, literally grown rich from the power of her luxurious, uh, luxurious living. And so there's a, the point is, there's a spiritual reality here that is driving a physical response. I'm going to try to make that make sense in light of why is the world so alluring? It's because there is a spiritual reality that drives your physical response. There's three observations just right here in the text. The first is this. This is what we call a, a Christophany. It's kind of a big fancy word. Don't ask me to spell it. It's not on the screen. Good luck, unless you're online and has autocorrect, right? There's a Christophany that is taking place here. And this Many would believe and commentators would believe that the angelic host that the Apostle John is seeing here is in fact the Christ, that he is the Lamb of God is showing up in this window as we're looking through this revelation right here because of the imagery that is given to him. And so he is ascending down on the earth. He has great authority. The earth has been made bright with his glory. This is all imagery that the New Testament, the Old Testament alludes to in the coming of Christ. And not only is that happening? Not only is he great, not only is he lighting up the sky with his presence alone, but what else does he have going on here? In the midst of Babylon, Babylon the great, the great prostitute, all of her economic resources and all of her beauty and all of her materialism and everything that we find, that I find alluring, what does the angel do? What's he doing in this moment? He's singing in the face of evil. And we've seen this hymn. In the book of Revelation, it's not the first time that this has come up. It's not the first time that one of the saints has cried out and sung out, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And so this angelic host here is standing in the midst of this self-proclaimed greatness that we're going to get to in a minute. And he just starts singing in her face. You're going down. Judgment is coming on you. It is already here. You could even say he is already here. The second observation that we see just right there is that there is a spiritual reality to keep driving that home. And there is fallen, fallen as Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. There's a spiritual element to this prostitute of Babylon. That is that we do not get to physically get to see her. She's not 
physically sitting in front of us as she was in this revelation to the apostle John. We don't believe even as a church that there's a physical prostitute riding around on a beast in the cosmos wreaking havoc and judgment. We do believe that there is a spirit though, that there is demonic oppression that comes from the spirit of this woman that leads to materialism, that leads to sexual immorality, that leads to making you feel as if you're a little bit more awesome than God has designed you to be. And what's beautiful about that is that in the commentary that I get to read for this, the author there, Beale, says, and yet behind the facade of wealth and beauty, all there is is a dwelling place for demons. And yet behind the facade of wealth and beauty, all there was All there is current is a dwelling place for demons. And so everything that we saw in her was alluring, yeah? And yet also at the same time, I think I put it not near as eloquent. I said, here she is, attractive as she might be in front of you. Everything about her you're attracted to, yet she's wielding a knife behind her back. She wants to steal and kill and destroy everything that you find valuable in your life. Every single aspect. There's a spiritual element. Third, there's a physical element response that we see here in the text spiritual element that leads to a physical response verse three for all the nations have drunk the wine of her passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have literally committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have literally grown rich from the power of her luxurious living it says they have drunk they have committed they have grown there's a physical aspect that is taking place here that in the presence of this spirit you are led to then Respond physically. You still tracking with that? Is it too wordy for you? It's kind of wordy, sorry. I think the Apostle Paul sums it up for us in a better way that I know how to do. And then I'm going to show you the grace that's found in this first point. Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul puts it like this, and I think it'll make more sense. He says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Whose might? His might. Okay, just make sure you're tracking Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil or the plots of the devil. That's what we're learning about in Revelation right now. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, what? Against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Right? He starts to say, we don't, we're not wrestling with flesh and bone. We're wrestling with something that we can't quite see. We're wrestling with something powerful, something that exists in the heavenly, something, I would say, that the book of Revelation has kind of opened us up to, to be able to kind of pull back the curtain or lifted the shades, if I may, and we've been now allowed to kind of look through the window into this very real spiritual war and battle that is taking place. This is not just flesh and bone, it's cosmic powers over present darkness, it's spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly place. He says, therefore... Because that's true, now take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And I don't know about you, church, but when I read this, I think, man, this is super liberating for me. Like, there's some sins that Corey hasn't quite fully surrendered over to Jesus yet. And I don't know about you, but for me, whenever it comes to the things I go back to again and again and again, then there's a level of shame, there's a level of irritability, frustration I can have. With myself, anybody else? And, and in that, like, th- don't hear me say something I'm not. I'm not going to give you a license to sin. I'm not going to give you an opportunity to be licentious and say, well, pastor, you said it six months ago. This is just my lot in life, you know? 
Just can't stay away from the bottle. You gave me access to it, right? That's not what I'm saying. I just, just swimming in sexual immorality over here. You said it was okay. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. There is, according to the Apostle John in Revelation and the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, there is a real cosmic power that's out to kill you. Like it's against you and it's against me. And so there is a reality where we wrestle with sin. Yes and amen. And we wrestle with sin because Adam and Eve rebelled and sin plagued all of creation as we know it. In that, then we have to wrestle with the flesh. The Apostle John says in Romans 17, man, I can't start doing some things that I love and I can't stop doing some things I hate. But it's not just me in me that is doing it. It is sin in me that is leading me to do these things. And so there's a reality where it is Sin and flesh, yes, that's a part of being a Christian, a part of walking in the world. But then there's this other reality here where there is a very, very real spiritual oppression that is out to get us, that wants to kill us, that wants to steal and destroy literally everything. And the way that they do it is she doesn't come at you with a gun in her hand. She comes at you and says, I know what you want most in life. I can promise, I can give you the thing that you're longing for the most. You don't have to be transparent to her church. You don't have to be vulnerable to her. She comes and rips open your chest cavity and says, there it is. Now let me offer it to you again and again and again. You want materialism? I can give it to you. You want status? I can give it to you. You want success? I can give it to you. You want security? You can have it. All you have to do is walk away from him and come lay with me. The prostitute offers you grace and mercy, and salvation, and promises a better gospel, but at what cost? Your life instead of Christ. That's the cost of getting in the car with her. Tracking? I love that the Apostle Paul here says we do not wrestle. I was thinking about this in the first service, not in my notes, just kind of processing uh, through that. In light of Josiah and I having a, a jiu-jitsu competition that's coming up, uh, you know, some dads teach, take their kids fishing, uh, I'm not much on fishing, so we pay to go fight people, okay, in my family. They're both necessary, okay? They're both necessary. You need both. When you think about that, though, and Mark was in here. I don't know if Mark is still in here. I can't see with the lights, but Mark, who just led us in worship, we do jiu-jitsu together. And the reality is when it comes to a fight, when it comes to wrestling, in this case, when it comes to grappling, there is a level of intimacy that has to exist in that relationship for you to make certain decisions. There's a closeness that is 100% necessary. We're not just two grown men in white pajamas rolling around on the ground. We are those things. But there's also this, there's a, a closeness, a close intimacy. There's a place where you have to know this person as well as be known to know what is coming down the road. And then there even, I would argue that there is a sense of intimacy that you need to be able to make a commitment in your head that says, I'm going to choke you within nine seconds of your existence. It takes nine seconds when you cut off the carotid artery. And then I'm going to honor a tap. Like, what if they just didn't honor it? It's the stuff you think about when someone's choking you with nine seconds of your life. What if they didn't honor it? There's an intimacy to the fight here, though. You tracking with that? And I appreciate the illustration that the Apostle John is doing, giving to us in light of this cosmic power, because there's an intimacy that she brings to the fight. There's a closeness that she brings. There's a nearness that she brings. She understands your positioning and your movement and what you can do and what you want to do and where you're hoping to take the fight to, and in every single way, she cuts you off. There's a level of intimacy there as you are rolling around together. As you're wrestling with sin, she knows you. 
And so I'm not giving you a license to sin. What I am saying is this. It's not just flesh and sin. It's also a cosmic entity. And it's the spirit of the prostitute. And in that, for me, church, there's some liberation in there. Like there's some grace in it to go, it is not just me that sins, but it is the spirit of the prostitute against me that is sinning. It doesn't mean that I don't pursue the cross. It doesn't mean I don't believe the gospel. It doesn't mean I diminish the power of the cross over sin and death in my life, but it at least gives me an understanding. Why is the world so alluring? Because there's a very real spirit at hand that knows you and knows what you want, and she will try to fabricate and mimic all the things that Jesus properly is willing to give you so that you'll pursue her and walk away from him. There is a spiritual reality that drives a physical response. Does that point make sense now? Hopefully that makes sense to you. Second point then is this. There's a spiritual reality as well still that requires now a physical response. Not that just drives a physical response, but that requires a physical response. There's an action that is necessary for us. Revelation 18, verse 4 through 8 says this. Then I heard another voice. We'll stop at 5. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. We'll come back to you. Verse 5, this is a direct reflection upon the Tower of Babel right here. And if you know your Bible, if you think about it, Genesis 11, we see that the people of that time, they're standing in the presence of God. They have everything that they could need. Sin has entered into the world, most certainly. There's been a lot of devastating things that have happened, but the people are together, and they have shared language, and they have shared vision, and they have a shared desire, here's how smart they are, that they can build a tower up to the kingdom of heaven. And once they've built that tower up to the kingdom of heaven, they can then build a city in the kingdom of heaven, creating their own kingdom of heaven. Does that sound like someone you should follow? Just a little higher, guy. We'll get there, right? Like, we're going to do it. It's a bunch of good old boys out there, right, from Troy or St. Jacob doing some stuff like that. They're up there like, we're going to build this thing up high, high as the skies, right? And so in a moment, the Lord comes down. You can say in an hour because that's coming. In an hour, the Lord comes down. In a moment, he comes down. And what does he do? I mean, he knocks their tower down like it's a stack of Legos the little kids put together. He confuses all their languages And then he disperses them about the globe. The very thing that they did not want to happen, he brings upon them because it's the only way to keep them safe. It's the only way to keep them from swimming in the sin that they're about to swim in. Genesis 11.4 says this of that moment, and this is telling of Revelation 18. It says, then he said, then they said, sorry, then they, the people of Babel, said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Let us do what? Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They say, let us make a name for ourselves. And what they're saying is that moment, in that moment is, let us be greater than God. Look at our power. Look at our authority. The one thing they didn't want is to be dispersed. They say, let us build up this tower and build up our fame and build up our name. Because if we can do that, then we'll be unstoppable. We'll be like God's. And God just laughs at them like they're little children. And he knocks their tower down and flicks them out across the earth, confusing everything for them. That's exactly what is happening here in the text in Revelation chapter 18. This woman has come. The spirit of the prostitute has come. And and he's giving, the angel is giving this warning. And he's saying, you got to get out of her. If you're trying to build a name for yourself using her, there's only one name that's above every other name. It's not hers. And it's not yours. His name is Jesus. 
And so there's a warning to the righteous, not to the unrighteous. It's a warning to the church. He's saying, you have tasted and seen and you keep going back and you desire materialism and you desire to look a certain way and you want power and you want prestige and you want your name up there and it's going to kill you. Judgment is coming upon her and a double portion that she has brought to her own people. You're going to drink the cup of the judgment. And so there's a warning here. There's a a plea for them to literally come out of the world. This is also the same calling in a righteous way to Father Abraham. Whenever Father Abraham is called away from his nation to go by faith in the land of Canaan, God looks at Father Abraham. He's like, man, you got to come out of there. You got to come out. Do you want to receive the blessings of God? Do you want to see his promises fulfilled? Do you want to be the father of many nations? Do you want to see everything that God has promised given over to you? You got to come out of the world. And God makes him righteous. And then he continues to walk. And then we see everything that comes from Father Abraham to now, birthing the church. And this is the same plea and the same call. He's saying you got to get away from the tower. And if you know about this, Tower of Babel is where Babylon began. It literally means to Babel. And so verse 6, when we continue, uh, he says he's going to bring righteous justice upon her. Verse 6, he says, we're going to pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. Verse 7, this is where we're going to camp. And she glorified herself and lived in luxury. Who glorified her? She glorified herself. Sounds like Jezebel in the scriptures, yeah? Self-proclaimed prophetess, I believe, Paul says of her. Self-proclaimed glory here. She glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, not because it's true, not because it's reality, but in her heart, she says, tell me we can trust our emotions, church. In her heart, she says, I sit here as a queen. Listen to this. I sit as a queen. I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. I want you to think about this. Self-proclaimed glory. Tell me if you know someone like this. Maybe this is you sometimes. Like she's self-proclaimed, self-glorified. I said as a queen, I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. And you want to look at her and say, girlfriend, your hair is on fire. Like do you not see what's happening around you right now? Every tower, every stronghold, every person that you have following you is one by one, getting either knocked down or ceasing to exist. And you think you're okay right now? She comes out looking all tattered and crazy. I'm fine. Like, what happened to the girl from <laughs> chapter 17, you know? You look at her like, yeah, right? Like, I'm good. I sit as a queen, right? She's saying, it's my throne. It's my kingdom. It's my tower. I am no widow. That's a reference for them for security, right? Because if you live in a patriarchal culture, you've got to be married to have an inheritance. And she says, I am no widow. I have security and mourning I shall never see or sorrow I shall never see or sadness I shall never see. And I just want to, I almost feel bad for her. Like I want to get in front of her and shake her by the face and say, do you not see what's happening? Everything around you is crumbling. She's like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm totally fine, it's all fine. It's most certainly not fine for her. It's going to go really, really, really bad. What is it? Ask the question, why do I find the world so alluring? Because this is what the world promises. The world promises that, hey, no matter how bad things get for you, you can do you. You just be you. 
You just keep trucking. You live your best life now. Doesn't matter what things look like. Hey, turns out reality, you don't even have to call it reality anymore. Two plus two is five. Go tell your bank account that. Let me know how that goes for you. Hey, your truth is your truth. Your stuff is your stuff. Your kingdom is your kingdom. And you look around and literally everything's on fire around this person. Don't you just want to grab them by the face and say, your reality is not actual reality. Stop listening to the world. And so what the world offers is this. You can sit on the throne. You can be queen. You can have security. You don't have to be a widow. Mourning, you do not have to experience. Isn't it also extremely hypocritical and interesting that in a world that says you can be you or you can do you, the moment you come vulnerable to the world and tell them how you're really doing, they just try to medicate you? We live in the highest, most medicated society in history. In light of self-glorification, we have the most amount of self-diagnosis that we've ever had. I mean, who even needs a doctor anymore, right? I got WebMD. I mean, hypochondria is off the charts. Anxiety is the highest it's ever been. Depression is the highest it's ever been. ADHD is the highest it's ever been. Sleep disorders is the highest they've ever been. Um, eating disorders are the highest that they've uh, ever been. Alcohol addiction, drug abuse. Self-diagnosis and self-medication, all the highest that have ever been. Does the world sound like a safe place to live? What is you do you getting you <laughs> besides medicated? Right, the moment we come in and we say, man, I'm actually, I'm actually not okay, then all of a sudden they don't know what to do with you. I had a conversation with a woman in my missional community this week. Corey, you're calling us to be vulnerable. You're calling us to be transparent. But the moment that I say, hey, here's what I got going on, everyone either shuts down or they pat me on the back with the Christian saying of, I'll pray for you, knowing they're not going to pray for me. And tell me that's not what the church does more often than not. And so there's this self-glorification that is happening as a, let's say this, self-glorification is a product of being in the spirit of the prostitute. Right? If you want to know if you walk in the spirit of the prostitute, maybe ask the question, do I view my life around me realistically? Do I care more about my name, more about my fame? Do I, do I actually believe everything is secure whenever it's truly not secure? Do I paint a picture of a marriage that isn't actually healthy? Do I paint a picture of a parenting style that doesn't actually work? Do I post pictures up about a job that I don't actually care anything about? And if the answer is yes to those things, I would say you're swimming in the spirit of the prostitute. Because that's what she leads you to say. She leads you to say that I will, not, I will be secure and I will sit on the throne and I will not feel suffering while we all feel all that. Don't we? I would say to avoid the reality of your situation is to drink the cup of wrath before it's due. This last point here is this. An hour is not an hour. It doesn't seem as if it fits, but it most certainly fits. I'm going to read from 18, 8 through 10, and then we're going to... Uh, we're going to stop at 10. It says this, For this reason her plagues will come in in a single day, death and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with a fire. In a single day that will happen. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Mind you, in a few more verses, it's going to say they're only crying because no one else is buying their products anymore. That's how much they care about her. Verse 10, they will stand far off in fear of her torment. They're not coming to her rescue, are they? And they will say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in, here it is again, for in a single hour your judgment has come. 
Two more times in the book of Revelation, it's going to say in a single hour, her judgment is going to come. And in a single hour, her judgment is going to come. And so I put the third point on here is this. An hour is not an hour. Her judgment has been coming since the garden. Uh, from the moment that she duped Adam and Eve into rebelling against God the Father and ushering sin into the world, her hour of judgment has been underway. It did not just lay. She didn't, God didn't let that go. You understand? He wasn't like, oh, I saw that, noted, in the end, I'll take care of business. No, her judgment has been coming. This is a reality for her that exists now, but most certainly makes itself exist in the future. And so an hour is not an hour. So she's sitting here in the midst of this judgment. I would argue that whenever we pursue the world, instead of pursuing after Jesus, we get a taste of this hour, right? And, and the thing I wrote in my notes this week is like, who, and I've said this before here, but I just come back to it a lot. Who's let you down more than you? No one has let you down more than you'll let yourself down, 100%. And so anytime Corey then looks to the world and finds her alluring and enticing and good, and I want the next materialistic thing, I want the next good or the next service, or I want power or privilege or prestige, like I want those things, and then I don't receive those things, how do I feel? I feel the same way you feel. How do you feel? Whenever you feel, you feel beat up, you feel let down, like, man, just need a little retail therapy. I'm going to go hit Target. I'm going to hit something on Amazon. No different than what Mark led us through. That Amazon package just comes lightning fast, by the way, right? We're like, praise the Lord for Amazon shipping. We get that thing open, and 15 minutes later, how do we feel? Do we feel, glor do we feel glorified? Salvation has come to me. Thank you, Amazon. I knew you could do it, Jeff. I knew it. No, that doesn't happen, does it? You're like... With, with a spirit of automaticity, man, you're right back on your phone on Facebook looking for the next advertisement. Still being let down. 10,000 advertisements will hit you in the next seven days, all telling you how awesome you are. And simultaneously, all letting you down. But what are they promising in that moment? They're promising liberation. They're promising freedom. They're promised to be a better gospel than God's given you in his gospel. They promise you salvation. They promise you new identity. They promise you an awakening. They promise you all these things. How are they doing? Has the ad ever truly satisfied you, church? And yet we continue returning back to her. Why? Because she's so attractive. She knows exactly who we are and what we need. And I would say every time we're let down, we share in that hour of the prostitute. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus endured an hour of suffering so that you never have to. That's the gospel. The, the beauty of, of the gospel is simply that. And his hour, church, was not just an hour. It was a lifetime. And it took an eternity of preparation for him to get there. If we were to open up the gospels and start reading, I'll finish with this. If we were to open up the gospels and start reading, in John chapter 2, Jesus comes on the scene as a single man at a wedding. And his mom comes up to him and says, I need you to save the wedding. Lo and behold, how do I save the wedding? I need you to save the wedding by turning water into wine. And so Jesus does that. He creates 32 gallons of oinos in the Greek, 32 gallons of wine. Hey, that's one way, wedding planners in the room, to save a wedding, right? And so he saves the thing. But yet, if we were to read that text, there's a, there's a bit of angst in him as he's standing there at that wedding. And she's, his mom comes and he says, I need you to turn water to wine. He says, woman, my hour has not yet come. He doesn't say woman like woman. He didn't say it like that. He says, it's a term of endearment. It's alma in the Greek. It's not as... Feminists try to point paint it. It's not what it is. He says, basically, Mom, my hour has not yet come. And so think about that for just a minute. Like, here comes the creator of the cosmos, can see outside of time and space. He's standing there as a single at a wedding, thinking about the day he's going to have to save his wedding. 
And the the beauty of the gospel for us is the most horrific thing for him is that Jesus doesn't save the wedding by getting to walk an aisle, listen to some vows, and kiss somebody. The only way that Jesus gets to save the wedding is by going through an hour of torment, an hour of torture. Listen to this. His hour is everything that the prostitute is ignorant to in her life. Where she says, I'm going to be the queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Jesus says, I am the king of kings. And I'm going to let go all of that so that I can come and walk on the earth in perfection because they couldn't do it. And in that moment, he doesn't say, I'm not a widow, but he could say this, I'm going to lose all of my security, right? He doesn't, he could have just started, he could have Thanos just out of there, right? Just done. We're going to start from scratch. But because he's a covenantly faithful and covenant-keeping God, he does not do that. He surrenders all of his security, walks in alongside humanity, walks in perfection, foregoing everything, goes to the cross where man, oh man, you better believe, fully surrenders every ounce of security he could possibly have. For the first time in the history of time, he's separated from his father for just a moment. How much more security could he lose, right? Like for the first time in ever, think about that. The father turns his back on the son, leaves in there no security, leaves in there hanging in the shame of the world's sin on his person. The effects of the world. You want to know what the effects of the prostitute get you? You look at Jesus battered on the cross. That's it. And so not only is the, does he die for sin, we talked about this two weeks ago, but the effects of sin, so every effect that ever could happen in the world because of sin, that's what he experiences and dies for. Every single ripple effect for it ever, for all of time, that's what he dies for. And then he's resurrected anew, sins us the Holy Spirit. None of that is possible without an hour. Listen, his hour is not an hour. You still tracking with that? Like his hour took eternity. His hour took millennia. His hour took days of years, preparation, walking with the 12, all the things that Jesus did. And then he resurrects so that why? So the hour of judgment that comes on the prostitute never has to fall on us. So that we can have a real view of the world around us. Jesus looked at us in our spiritual state and said, I'm the only one that can physically do something about it. And so he pursues. And then Jesus offers for us spiritually what the prostitute can never deliver Physically, I should have put that on the screen for you. He's the only one that can actually bring salvation. The only one that the gospel is actually good news about. He's the only one that's actually alluring, that's enticing, that's right. And he does it all, not so that we would go return to the world again and again, but so we would see a resurrected, glorified Jesus and pray like heck that he's enough whenever we don't believe that he is. Why don't you stand with me and let's help communion usher us into into the kingdom. Uh, every week we take communion together as a family and so another guest in the room so let me be clear in saying you don't have to be a member of Heights Community to take communion uh, by any means we do ask that you would uh, be a professing Christian who does uh, believe the gospel and believe in Jesus and so there are communion cups if you're unable to grab one on the way in uh, just right up here on the tables and baskets you can feel free uh, to grab that cup before you start to open it Let me read you out of 1 Corinthians and remind you of why we do this. Uh, The Apostle Paul says this. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The most beautiful aspect of a communion is that it is a picture of the gospel. It's a living, active, visible picture of the gospel. This is why every Sunday, we're not here just to sing songs and, and pray and experience liturgy in a sermon. Every Sunday, we're trying to get to this moment right here for communion, right? It's not just, it's more than just little elements in your hand and a crinkly little top that's distracting while I'm trying to talk to you. It's communion. It's a sacrament given by Jesus for this moment so that we can hold the gospel literally in our hands and be reminded that it's not our work, it's his work that's necessary for redemption. And so as you hold that in your hand, you see the cup which represents Christ's blood that was spilt in your place as your substitute. At the same time, you get to see the small piece of bread that represents Christ's body that was broken for you in your place as your substitute. In light of today's text, it's a physical reminder that Jesus is literally everything the prostitute pretends to be. That he gave up everything for you. Not so that you would hear the gospel and then go about not changed, but so you would hear the gospel, you would confess in transparency, you would pursue repentance, and it would make you more and more and more vulnerable so that it's easier and easier to go back to him again and again. So whenever you take in that meal today, we pray that it would form and reform you to look more and more like Christ today, tomorrow, and forevermore. For those of you that are in Christ, the table's open.